You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Everyone, welcome to One Hour at a Time. I'm Mary Woods, and I am the director of Westridge Community Services, um, a nonprofit organization that works with people who have severe and persistent mental illness and uh, substance use disorders. And today, we're going to talk about um, methamphetamine addiction and treatment. And we have with us an expert in methamphetamine treatment, and his name is Eric Martin. Um, he is the executive director of the the Addiction Counselor Certification Board of Oregon. Eric is also an instructor with the University of Oregon and Oregon's Child Welfare Division. Eric has 23 years of clinical experience in inpatient psychiatric hospitalizations, residential and outpatient addictions treatment, and um, alcohol and other drug prevention. As a recovering person, clinician, and educator, Eric brings insight and humor into understanding the drug-brain behavior connection um, which is a very dry subject, so I'm glad you can help us uh, understand that better. Eric is an international presenter and treatment advocate. He has been honored with numerous awards over the years, including the Oregon Governor's Award of Excellence. Eric is a member of the Oregon Governor's Council on Substance Abuse Programs and the Governor's Advisory Board on Drugs and Violent Crime. Eric has also produced a number of videos, including Reunited, a video designed for methamphetamine-addicted mothers entering the child welfare system. <coughs> Um, thank you, Eric, for being our guest today. And um, methamphetamine uh, abuse and addiction has just become epidemic in many parts of our country. And I thought maybe we could begin by just um, talking a little bit about the history of methamphetamine. Um, you know, where, where did the drug come from? How, how has it been used? Sure, sure. Well, first, I, I want to thank you for having me on. And um, um, it's it's the the progression of methamphetamine is quite interesting in what's happened in recent years i would say the last decade with methamphetamine but essentially methamphetamine has been around for almost 100 years now and there are a variety of different kinds of methamphetamine they're not all the same um there's levo methamphetamine there's dl methamphetamine and dextromethamphetamine, and those are some of the major types. Levomethamphetamine, you can buy over the counter. It's completely legal, and it's inside Vicks inhalers. Um, so the next time you're at the drugstore, you might want to just pick up a, a Vicks inhaler and just read the ingredients on it. It says levomethamphetamine right on it. So it's important for your listeners to understand that there are different kinds of methamphetamine. Some are extremely addictive, and some aren't very addictive at all. Uh, for example, like the type that's in uh, Vicks inhalers. So in, in understanding that, it's important to see how um, this new type of methamphetamine uh, came to exist. Now, back in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, the type of methamphetamine that was around uh, on the street was a type of methamphetamine known as DL methamphetamine, or basically dextrolevomethamphetamine. And it's what chemists call a racemic compound. This type of methamphetamine was addictive, for sure. 
and it was made from a precursor chemical called phenyl-2-propanone. And meth cooks would buy phenyl-2-propanone from chemical warehouses around the United States. Well, during the late 1980s, several pieces of legislation were passed, uh, most formidably the 1988 drug bill. And these pieces of legislation gave law enforcement the ability to go after precursor materials um, in ways that they had not previously been able to do. For example, law enforcement could start tracking precursor materials that were purchased. Um, they could get warrants to get list of customers. Um, they could um, uh, get list of customers at places that sell grow lights, for example, for like marijuana grow operations. So these bills passed by Congress gave law enforcement the ability to track uh, these precursor materials, which gave them the ability then to track phenyl-2-propanone. Well, when this happened, law enforcement was able to successfully go after folks that were acquiring phenyl-2-propanone to the point that meth cooks couldn't get it anymore. So what they did is, is they created a new recipe. And this new recipe used pseudoephedrine. And they created a new recipe for methamphetamine called the pseudoephedrine reduction method. And what most people don't realize is that this made a new kind of meth. So the kind of meth that has been around in the 1990s all the way up till now is not the same meth that was around in the 1960s, the 1970s, or even the 1980s. Sometimes I hear folks that, that um, you know, have worked in treatment for a long time or have been in recovery for a long time. They'll say, you know, I don't know what the big deal is about meth and all this stuff you see on the news all the time. You know, meth was around, you know, when I was young and when I was in my, my disease. Well, the reason why it's a big deal is it's not the same drug. It's a different drug. It's a new drug. And this new drug, which is pure D, dextrorotatory methamphetamine, is about three times stronger than the meth that was around in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And today's meth is smokable. In fact, uh, Dr. Wesley Clark, executive director of CSAT, the Center for Substance Abuse Treatment, um, he basically says that, that methamphetamine is the new bathtub crack. Uh, or in other words, it's, a, it's, it's the new version of crack, it's the new crack that people can just simply make at home with chemicals that you can purchase over the counter um, in, at the grocery store. So that's sort of the history in, in where we're at in regards to methamphetamine. One of the things that we have um, noticed in um, the Northeast is that it's just beginning to kind of creep its way into the, uh, the New England. And, um, but there are pockets of the country where methamphetamine abuse is just epidemic. And I know in Oregon, it's one of those places. And, and could you um, just talk a little bit about why, why is it so um, regional? Sure. Well, over the last 10 to 15 years, um, this new type of methamphetamine, D-methamphetamine hydrochloride, has largely been available west of the Mississippi. 
and not really so much east of the Mississippi. So the eastern part of the United States has not uh, experienced the new meth as much as the west. Um, we've had it going on for a good 15 years. So, and, and that, that is largely because most of the methamphetamine is coming out of Mexico. Um, it started um, with one of the largest um, methamphetamine cartels out of Mexico uh, called the Amazcua Contreras cartel. And um, about 80% of the meth consumed in the western part of the United States was actually coming from Mexico. And law enforcement also often refers to this methamphetamine as Mexican methamphetamine. About 20% uh, was being produced locally in labs uh, throughout the West and, and Midwest. So I would say that's probably the primary reason why the East Coast hasn't seen as much of the new methamphetamine as the West Coast because uh, the Mexican cartels don't have the inroads uh, into the East Coast the way that they do the, the West Coast. Um. What makes this new methamphetamine so much more addictive? Well, as I said, it's it's a new recipe, and this new recipe, D-methamphetamine hydrochloride, um, simply connects to receptor sites in the brain and spinal cord uh, with a higher affinity than uh, the old methamphetamine, the DL methamphetamine. In fact, um, L-methamphetamine, which I previously told you about, which is inside Vicks inhalers, doesn't doesn't do a good job of connecting with receptor sites in the brain and the spinal cord at all, and that's why it's an over-the-counter drug that you don't even need a prescription for. Um, the more that that a drug has an affinity to receptor sites in the brain, the more that it activates the pleasure and reward center in the brain, the nucleus accumbens, the greater its addictive liability, and. Today's methamphetamine is it just has a really high addictive liability. Studies have shown its addictive liability as high as 75%. That means that basically three out of four people that try meth become addicted to meth. So it's um, um, amazingly addictive um, and significantly more potent than the meth that was around uh, back when many of us were young. For any parents out there that may be um, concerned about their, their children or um, anyone for that matter, what would be telltale signs that someone's under the influence of, of meth? Well, some of the telltale signs are, are uh, dilated pupils. So that would be, you know, the black part of the eye is real big and you can't see any color in the iris of the eye. Um, the person would be anxious uh, or fidgety. And they might have stereopathic behavior, which means that they're repeating the same behavior over and over again. So it could be like uh, tapping their foot, or it could be um, uh, drawing, or it could be some behavior that they just cannot stop repeating over and over and over again. Sometimes methamphetamine addicts will call it a tweaker mission. And what that means is, is that once the person gets onto a certain uh, hobby or behavior or activity, they can't stop, and they'll do it. They'll do it for 10 hours. They'll do it for 20 hours. They'll do it for 30 hours. So that's why they call it a tweaker mission because the person just cannot stop that behavior. Um, 
Also, people will have um, tactile hallucinations, meaning feeling hallucinations, where they think that there are bugs or things underneath their skin, so they tend to pick at their skin. Uh, it's not unusual for methamphetamine addicts to have um, sores, and sometimes people refer to these as, as tweaker pox uh, or tweaker bugs, um, and it's these sores, infected sores, um, that can be on the person's face, all over their hands and arms and legs, anywhere where a person can repeatedly scratch and pick at themselves. Um, also, methamphetamine causes rapid tooth decay. So a lot of times uh, people will have uh, a lot of teeth that are coming out and decaying rapidly. Uh, methamphetamine causes uh, the, the mouth to be very dry, so the lips are oftentimes cracked. The tongue can even get cracks in it. People will have uh, dramatic weight loss on methamphetamine. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, Any I'm, cardiac complications with methamphetamine? Uh, certainly. And we can talk about those when we come back. Okay. Um, we'll be back in just a moment with more on uh, methamphetamine. If anyone has any questions they would like to ask Garrett, please give us a call, and we'll see you on the other side of the break. Thank you. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold, or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out, and you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Save up to $100 now. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everybody. Um, We're talking about methamphetamine uh, addiction and and we were just talking before the break a little bit about some of the signs and, and telltale signs of meth use. And um, I had asked Eric about any of the cardiac complications with meth, like similar like there are with cocaine. And you were just going to finish that up, Eric. Yeah, there are some cardiac problems. Um, people do uh, overdose on methamphetamine and die of cardiac arrest. But, but probably what's even more uh, scary about methamphetamine than its acute cardiac effects is that it can have long-term cardiac effects, um, and there's been relatively a small amount of research uh, around this issue. Um, the effect that it has is called contraction band necrosis, where it actually like kills strands of heart muscle tissue um, in the heart. And a person just may not be aware of it. They may think, oh, you know, well, I'm going to party for a couple years while I'm young, you know, and then I'll quit everything and I'll clean up my act, not realizing that they may be cutting off 10 or 20 years at the end of their life as a result of early-onset cardiac problems. So uh, physicians uh, were aware of contraction band necrosis in the late 1980s during the crack epidemic, that crack cocaine cause this problem and apparently methamphetamine it's even worse so it's that's sort of a scary thing when you think that 12 million Americans have used methamphetamine so yeah yeah um, I'd like to backtrack a little bit we were talking um, a little bit about the politics of um, methamphetamine and um, you had mentioned the cartels in Mexico, and I don't know whether this is a myth or an urban legend, but um, the the whole notion of um, bikers kind of spreading meth and being kind of the the, the, the transportation agents of uh, of methamphetamine. And actually, that actually, that is true, um, and that's that's where the word crank came comes from. Um, uh, bikers would carry methamphetamine, uh, like in the crankcase of their motorcycles, at least mm-hmm. this is uh, what I've read, and that's where the term crank came from. So I think it's more than just a, an urban legend or myth. Um, most people seem to agree that, that this is the case. But, but uh, I'd like to say a little bit about contemporary politics in regards to um, methamphetamine. And previously I, I spoke about the Mexican cartels that that were making uh, methamphetamine, but it's important to understand how corporations have also participated in creating this problem in America. Um, There are roughly seven um, international companies that manufacture pseudoephedrine, and the Mexican cartels have to buy that pseudoephedrine from somebody. And if if you're interested in this uh, topic at all, um, there's an interesting article called The Unnecessary Epidemic that was written by a reporter named Stephen So. 
and his name is Stephen S-U-O, Stephen So. In fact, he, he won a first-place Meyer Award for his investigative study called, or report called The Unnecessary Epidemic. And he went to Mexico, and he uh, did research uh, going through their import-export logs, and he found that, that um, in 2002, Mexico imported 60 metric tons of pseudoephedrine. Wow. Now, this was largely being used by the cartels to manufacture methamphetamine. In 2004, Mexico imported 240 metric tons of pseudoephedrine. It's important to understand how some corporations and companies are participating in facilitating or enabling drug abuse in our society. Um, I'm sure many of your listeners, Mary, have been to convenience stores and they've seen crack pipes out on the counter. Um, many of the big chains like Texaco and some of the other big chains used to openly sell crack pipes right out on the counter, which was, uh, I don't know if you've seen them before, Mary. Have you seen those? Yes. Okay, and we're talking about the little glass tube, right, right. you know, with the flower in it, yeah. you know, and, and the box, you know, alleges buy this flower for somebody that you love, and mm-hmm. but it's actually a crack pipe. So a lot of companies um, were participating in facilitating and enabling addiction. So we talk about enabling a lot, you know, in our business in, in addiction treatment, um, and sometimes family members enable addicts. Well, in this particular case... We're talking about a lot of companies that are enabling addiction in our society. So um, when law enforcement um, uh, passes uh, legislation to go after um, addicts or, or people that uh, produce drugs, um, that's not the end of the food chain. <laughs> the food chain starts oftentimes somewhere else, and it's somewhere higher up. So here in Oregon, we pass legislation requiring uh, people to have a prescription from their doctor in order to get pseudoephedrine. See, for example, like a lot of states have moved pseudoephedrine behind the counter, um, so you have to actually go up to the pharmacy counter and ask for pseudoephedrine. In Oregon, we have uh, some of the strictest laws in the country in regards to pseudoephedrine, because you can't just go up and ask for it. You have to have a prescription from a doctor to get it. And we went from 700 meth labs a year down to seven a year. Wow. We, we had success overnight by restricting access to pseudoephedrine. And, the, and when this legislation was proposed in Oregon, pharmaceutical companies came out of the woodwork to oppose it to oppose these new requirements requiring a prescription. So it almost makes you wonder why, why they would oppose that or why they would sell so much pseudoephedrine to Mexico. So that's something that we have to take a look at as well, is how these large corporations sometimes facilitate addiction uh, in our society. And we have to stand up and do something. Um, uh, to take action against that. Well, most of the opiate addiction in America is a result of prescribed medication, not heroin. 
True, true. Yeah. And, it, and that's a really scary trend right now. Yeah. Um, right now, the, the, the U.S. government has been working with the Mexican government successfully to reduce the importation of pseudoephedrine. So the amount that um, the Mexican cartels are getting is dropping dramatically. So we're actually seeing meth going down in the U.S. In fact, use peaked out between 2002 and 2004. So the problem is getting better. It doesn't mean that we don't have to worry about it. It just means that, that some of the things that we're doing are starting to work. And, and that includes restricting access to pseudoephedrine, the key ingredient to make methamphetamine, and making sure that treatment is available for meth addicts. One, one of the things um, that I've noticed, um, not so much now because I'm not doing as many intakes, but um, doing a substance use profile, we begin like probably in the um, early 90s, just asking about over-the-counter medication because people with co-occurring disorders, oftentimes they could they could buy uh, Benadryl or Mesmich um, Benadryl, but Sudafed, Ephedrine, all the over-the-counter stuff, and take it by the box full. Well, that's... and get a really cheap kind of um, you know high from that, and um, we would see people using large amounts of over-the-counter. Pseudoephedrine. That's true. That's true. There has been uh, historically there has been pseudoephedrine abuse. Uh, in fact, um, uh, at one point, uh, pseudoephedrine and ephedrine didn't uh, didn't have warning labels or anything like that on it, and the FDA required that warning labels be put on it. So, um, but clearly, um, we've seen lots of folks. Uh, abuse over-the-counter medications, and, and and I think some of it is probably related to income. Um, historically, we've seen people of poverty right. abuse less expensive drugs, uh, which can oftentimes be more dangerous. You know, for example, when you come to inhalants, you know, like gasoline, paint, or glue, things along those lines. You had talked a little bit earlier about some of the ramifications of. Um, methamphetamine abuse, and I know in Oregon, um, I, have, I have some friends who work out there, and they were just kind of sharing with me a little bit about the the multi-generational um, effect that meth has had on families because, um, you know, the, the parent will become so debilitated that now the grandparents have to take over you know, the uh, the result of children born to addicted moms. And we just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, that's probably one of the most devastating effects of methamphetamine. It, it is so incredibly um, psychiatrically impairing. Uh, it, it causes so many cognitive uh, disorders and, um, you know, including psychosis that, um, that, a lot of kids end up in foster care um, as a result of methamphetamine. And it, it got to the point in our state where our state was just flooded with child welfare cases um, that all revolved around methamphetamine. Um, when it comes to child welfare, meth is one of the worst drugs out there um, in, its, in its ability to cause um, 
of neglect and abuse of children. Um, we'll be right back with Eric Martin, and we'll be talking more about um, methamphetamine abuse and how it affects the family. Um, we'll see you right after this commercial break. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. For the most current and up-to-date information and options in childbearing, family health, and parenting, tune in to Celeste Ranisi's Timely Topics in Childbirth, broadcasting every Wednesday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. If you don't know your options, you don't have any. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show. For women, men, children, and families, Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. If anyone has a question on methamphetamine uh, abuse and user treatment, please give us a call. Um, our guest is Eric Martin, who is an expert on, on the subject. And prior to going to break, we were talking a little bit about the, the effect, the devastating effect that methamphetamine abuse has had on children and families. And um, we kind of got cut off in the middle of it. So, Eric, could you kind of... Yeah. Um, methamphetamine has had a profound effect... Um, here in the West on child welfare systems, where child welfare systems have become absolutely flooded with methamphetamine cases and, and overburdened. And, and meth has a severe impact on, on a person's ability to parent. You know, there's, there's an array of different factors that child welfare looks at when they look at parenting and whether or not they should remove a child from a parent's custody. And, and they look at, at neglect. Um, you know, is the child being fed? Is the child being taken care of? They look at abuse. Is the child being, you know, physically, uh, emotionally abused? And they also look at the parent's capacity to protect the child. And, and you know, we don't often think, of, think about 
you know, the capacity to protect is being a parenting skill. But that is a parenting skill. Children are inherently dangerous. They are dangerous to themselves. And a parent has to have the ability to protect their child. And meth crosses all of these, from abuse to neglect to impairments in a parent's ability to protect. And that is why our system uh, was absolutely flooded with meth kids. And the expense to society is, is humongous when a drug like this hits and foster care numbers shoot through the roof. Um, and as you were saying, you, you were talking to some folks that you know in Oregon, and we have seen uh, multi-generational meth families um, where the parents were using meth and now the kids are using meth and now their kids are using meth. It's actually interesting. There's a, there's a treatment program in Eugene called Pathways, which is a lockdown uh, residential adolescent male treatment program. And at one point, all of the, the adolescent males in this program were in this program as a result of methamphetamine. It was their primary drug of abuse. So the program thought, you know, we have 100% of the population in here for methamphetamine. Why don't we do some survey work and collect some data? So the staff developed a survey and gave it to all of these uh, juvenile males. And one of the questions on the survey was, does one or more of your parents use methamphetamine? And a hundred percent of them indicated yes, that one or more of their parents used methamphetamine. That's pretty dramatic. So we have seen that uh, multi-generational families growing up um, using methamphetamine. And what are the long-term effects on, on children born to uh, methamphetamine-addicted mothers? Well, you know, it isn't well understood. It, it, there hasn't been a significant amount of research on that. And, um, you know, it's probably not a good idea to, you know, we found that it probably wasn't a good idea to get hysterical about it um, just because some of the backlash that we experienced back in the late 1980s when people were afraid that crack babies were going to you know, be these incredible uh, anti-social kids that were going to be like super criminals and with all sorts of, you know, defects and stuff. And, and a lot of that didn't happen. So what, what we do know that's probably one of the scariest things when it comes to methamphetamine is that people drink a lot when they use methamphetamine. They drink a lot and they're not even conscious of it. They're not cognizant of the volume of alcohol that they consume and the volume of alcohol that is consumed is probably uh, far more dangerous to the unborn child than the methamphetamine itself. So I'm not saying that, that it's okay for moms to use meth during pregnancy, not at all. What I'm saying is, is, that, is that we have evidence to suggest that alcohol is probably the worst drug that a person could use during pregnancy. And um, um, we suspect that methamphetamine probably does cause major problems with kids, but at this point we don't have any research to make any scientifically defensible statements about that. I know during um, World War II methamphetamine was used to um, help pilots stay awake on long bombing runs, and I, 
And I read somewhere um, where Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney were given methamphetamine so they could crank out all those Andy Hardy movies and all those movies in, in the studios. Um, Again, that that was a, that different, was a different kind of, of methamphetamine. Right. Right. There's many different kinds of methamphetamine. In fact, um, there's a type of ADHD medication that is a methamphetamine, but it's not the same thing as D-methamphetamine hydrochloride that people are smoking today. Um, that's It's not the same drug. Do you see any crossover susceptibility from people who have been using other types of methamphetamine, be it pilots or people with ADHD or... Well, at this point, yeah, that's a very good question. But at, at this point, we don't have any research to support that. Um, I, there have been a, a number of studies that have looked at ADHD kids that are medicated, comparing them to ADHD kids that are unmedicated. So experimental-type research. And one of the largest studies occurred in California, and they looked at ADHD kids. They looked at their rate of substance abuse, and they looked at um, kids that were medicated and kids that were not medicated. And when they tracked them over a period of years into their 20s, um, ADHD kids that were medicated had a lower rate of substance abuse than ADHD kids that were not medicated. And the ADHD kids that were medicated had a lower rate of substance abuse than kids in the general population. So the idea that... that uh, uh, psychiatric medication would cause somebody to become an addict or something along those lines, there's not a lot of evidence to support that. Um, um, you know, but certainly if kids are not ADHD and they're buying, you know, uh, some ADHD medication at school and taking it, that's a different scenario. And that may very well set a person up. Uh, for later substance abuse on stimulants. Um, today in, in uh, Lawrence, Massachusetts, there was a huge 14-building fire that occurred in a vac- that started in a vacant building. Of course, my my bias is, oh, I wonder if a meth lab blew up. Um, we were talking a little bit earlier about different costs to society, just from personal cost and, and the cost of the family, but there are bigger costs. To methamphetamine addiction too. Oh, there are major costs. You look at the cost of child welfare, you look at the cost of foster care, and you look at the cost of these meth labs. Oregon was ranging between 500 to 700 meth labs a year, and each one of these cleanups cost ten to $20,000. See, a lot of people don't realize that, that when you see these like meth labs on TV shows and stuff like that, you'll see folks walking around in these hazmat suits. Well, each one of these hazmat suits cost about $2,000. And when they get done with toxic cleanups, they, they have to throw those hazmat suits away. They get tossed. They get incinerated. So it's, it's a dramatic cost. And one of the bigger costs um, to society is what I like to call catch and release. Mary, have you ever been fishing before? No. <laughs> have you heard the phrase before, yes, catch have, and I release? Have. Yeah. You yeah. know what that means? Yes. It means that you catch the fish and then you throw it back. Yeah. Okay. And 
And the reason why fish, people that fish, um, you know, will heed catch and release policies and do catch and release is, is to ensure the growth of the fish population. It protects uh, the viability of fish. You catch the fish and you throw it back. Catch and release. Well, in a lot of states, because they don't know what to do with all these meth addicts, that becomes the number one drug policy. For years, that was the number one drug policy in Oregon, was what I like to call catch and release. Uh, the police would catch a meth addict, and then they would put him in jail for a couple weeks, and then they would let him go. Catch him again, put him in jail for a couple weeks, and let him go. And they would do it over and over again. And before long, most of the meth addicts that were coming through treatment, they reported that they had been to jail 50 or 60 times. Well, when you've been to jail 50 or 60 times, anywhere from a couple days to a couple weeks, at a societal cost of $130 a day for jail space, that's a huge waste of money. In fact, here in Portland, Oregon, uh, Chief Rosie Sizer, she's, she's chief of police here, um, she did a search when she took over as chief of police. She did a search in looking at the drug offenders. They were all meth addicts that had been going in and out of jail. And she found, uh, she had her staff print up a list of 100 meth addicts that had been to jail more than 50 Times. Wow. And she said, okay, we got to get these people to treatment because this is costing the taxpayers a ridiculous amount of money. And she found the money to send these hundred people to treatment. And at one year follow up, 70% reduction in recidivism. 70%. That's wonderful. Um, a couple of things I'd like to touch on. Um, the, the cognitive deficits that occur as a result of methamphetamine. Oh, issues. yeah. And then oh, what, yeah, Mary. what these are, are effective treatments? Well, these are well documented. And, and before I go into specific cognitive deficits, I want to say a little bit about how the system assesses people. Um, methamphetamine is a dramatic drug, meaning that it has dramatic effects uh, all along the way that a person is using it. And sometimes people get labeled when they come into the system. Um, and, for example, say that there's a mom that's been using methamphetamine, uh, you know, for a week and has been awake for an entire week using methamphetamine, hasn't slept a bit. And then she runs out of methamphetamine, and now she passes out, and she's asleep I mean, you could, like, shake her and shake her, and she's not going to wake up. She is in that deep of a sleep, just completely exhausted. Well, here it is. It's 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, her, her kids are out in the front yard playing at 4 in the morning. Um, there's a kid with dirty diapers, and, and you can sounds like we got to go to break. Yeah, you can finish. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Autism One, a conversation of hope, hosted by Betsy Hicks, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Autism is treatable, and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress, and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Betsy offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities, adult services, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, a conversation of hope, broadcast each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Autism One, a conversation of hope. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods. We're talking about methamphetamine. Um, and before we went to break, Eric was giving us a, a kind of a case scenario. So we never we didn't get to hear the end, Eric. So could you? Yeah, sure. So I, I was drawing you a, a scenario of where a mom is passed out. She's like passed out on the couch because she's been awake for a week, and the kids are out in the yard at four o'clock in the morning, and they're playing out in the yard. So somebody calls the police, and the police come over, and they try to rouse mom off the couch, and they can't get her roused off the couch. They can't get her to wake up, so they call an ambulance. So this is the point of entry for this family into child welfare and addiction treatment services, and the case will sort of take on the flavor or the label of a sad case, somebody who's depressed or who has some sort of health problems, and people sort of look at it that way. There might be another case where you know, mom or dad is on the roof and they're absolutely floridly psychotic and they're swinging an antenna around chasing UFOs away. Well, when the police come to take those kids and take those parents away, um, they, they'll they get labeled as psychotic and they'll get taken to a psychiatric ward or a psychiatric ward within a jail. And that's the label they sort of carry and the flavor that is carried throughout their case in the system. 
um, if they're caught during the course of a criminal offense related to methamphetamine, um, the person will be labeled criminal and antisocial, and they need to go into these programs that address criminogenic thinking and criminal thinking and stuff like that. So, and then the, that person will carry that flavor of that case through the course of their their uh, treatment and child welfare and criminal justice stay. So, it's important to understand that meth addicts are all of these things. That every meth addict that you get into services that comes into the system is all of these things, and that's because meth is a a dramatic drug. So, which is a little bit different than a lot of other drugs. Um, now, in regards to cognitive impairments, methamphetamine causes damage to the brain, and it causes severe damage to dopamine receptors. Uh, Dr. Nora Volkov, executive director of NIDA, did a study um, where she tracked uh, a group of 22 meth addicts over a period of three years, and she found an 8% atrophy 8% loss, tissue loss, in the hippocampus of the brain, and she found an 11% atrophy or tissue loss in the limbic section of the brain on average in these 22 meth addicts. So we're talking about a drug that does dramatic damage to the brain. Um, and some of the major cognitive problems that have been observed are in regards to memory and comprehension. Um, in an analysis that, that we did here in Oregon of uh, more than a dozen cognitive studies on methamphetamine, uh, we found that these impairments last for a good 90 days. Well, that's about the same amount of time as treatment. That means that by the time treatment is over, the person still has these cognitive impairments. So we need to be well aware of them when people come in. One of the first and major impairments that people need to understand is memory. Methamphetamine has an incredible impact on memory. In fact, Dr. Richard Rawson down in California, he did a study, and he found that memory impairments last a good six months and that people's memory actually got worse the longer they stayed sober, all the way up to six months, and then at six months, their memory started to improve. So you can almost expect that when people get, quit methamphetamine, that they're actually going to deteriorate a little bit. And we sort of have this expectation, you know, every day you stay clean and sober, you're going to get a little bit better. And that's probably not the way it works. People actually have to get worse before they get better. That's probably true of most drugs, and it is especially true of methamphetamine. So some of the major um, cognitive impairments are memory and demonstrating insight. Um, people aren't going to have like a lot of aha moments in that first 90 days. It's all about just staying off the drug, staying away from the drug, and accomplishing some really simple things to start to get your life back in order. It's about keeping it simple and so if you're expecting clients to have some major insight during that first 90 days, it's probably not going to happen. Mary, you've probably known counselors. I know, I know I have over the years. And I knew a counselor once that, that the first assignment that he gave his clients was he wanted his clients to read Man's Search for Meaning. Oh, my. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, well, that's stage 
to recovery kind of stuff. You can't do that in the initial stages. Yeah, that's interesting because most treatment programs, uh, at least traditional ones, in the first 90 days, it's most of it is geared toward insight or development. Well, a lot of it is geared towards insight. And, 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 and it's not to say that people can't have insight. It's just that with this particular drug, this particular drug causes damage to the brain. It causes chemical imbalances in the brain that just aren't going to heal up uh, real quick. It's going to take a while. And so, so you have to focus on on the basics um, when when people first uh, come in. So, also understanding metaphor. It means that you can't use a lot of cryptic speech or metaphor. Uh, people have difficulty making inferences, so you can't use a lot of innuendo in your speech as well. Um, so, those are important key things to remember. Now, some of the evidence-based practices that have been used in with methamphetamine um, include uh, motivational interviewing. And that has been found to be very effective. In fact, there's one experimental program here in Oregon called ChangePoint that has had dramatic success uh, using um, uh, motivational interviewing. They found at a uh, six-month follow-up that 70% of their clients uh, were clean and sober. So... Um, there's there's a, an array of of best practices and pra- and evidence based practices that are evolving out of our experiences with methamphetamine. And another important thing as a best practice measure is rapid admission. The longer that you delay admission, um, the greater the likelihood that the person is not going to um, comply with treatment and start treatment. And a lot of programs have become so complicated at the front door. Um, that people drop out within the first four sessions. In fact, Dr. Alan Zwieben did a study where he found that upwards of 75% of all treatment dropouts occur in the first four sessions. And that's largely because people aren't getting engaged. They aren't getting hooked right at the beginning of treatment. And this is oftentimes due to delayed admission. People will call up a treatment center and say, I need to make an appointment because uh, I gotta, you know, I'm complying with the court or my PO, and the treatment center will say, okay, well, you can come in in a week and get an assessment, and then they go in for that assessment in a week, and then the treatment program says, okay, you can come to orientation group, and that'll be next week. So then they go to orientation group, and then they say, okay, you got to come back for the treatment planning session. And that's where you'll be assigned your treatment counselor and your groups. And they come back a week later. It could be a month before they end up going to their first treatment session because of these appointments that keep going on and on and on. So we have to do rapid enrollment. We have to get people in quick and do our best to get them in quick because that's where we lose most people is in the first four sessions. In addition to motivational interviewing, are there other evidence-based practices? Treatment of well, there isn't. I would say the 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 evidence-based practices that have been used most with methamphetamine are are uh, cognitive behavioral uh-huh. and uh, motivational interviewing, and those are the two primary evidence-based practices. But in regards to an evidence-based practice specifically for methamphetamine, as far as I know. Um, motivational interviewing is the only one at this point. 
Um, this has been a, a great, wonderful, fascinating hour on methamphetamine abuse and treatment. Um, for those of you who may have questions, Eric Martin, um, Eric, for Eric, Eric, do you want to leave a, an email address or a phone number if people want to ask you questions directly? Um, well, uh, it's probably too long, Mary. <laughs> okay, well, you can email me at mwoods at westbridge.org, and I can pass it on to Eric. Or um, you can call the number, and they will pass the um, question on to us. Thank you so much, Eric, for uh, giving us all this great information on methamphetamine abuse and treatment. Sure thing. And thanks for having me on. Uh, not a problem. Hopefully you'll come back. Um, have a good week, everybody. See you next week when we'll be talking about clinical supervision with Tom Durham. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion, one hour at a time. We'll see you next week.